happening again. Um, great to be with you. Um, yeah, some of you or most of you probably uh, don't know me, but I do have a connection uh, to this church uh, somewhat. Uh, in 2010 and 2011, I actually attended the Kamai uh, Church. Uh, that was when you were meeting at your old building. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember the the, the street name, um, but hence I know. Jess and Jelena and uh, Yuhan and, and a few others. Uh, so um, it's great to be back um, with, with the congregation. Uh, and uh, I'd like to thank also um, the elders and uh, deacons, and particularly uh, Pastor Paul, for uh, having me this morning or inviting me to preach. It's always a huge risk when you invite someone that you don't really know that well to come and preach to the congregation particularly when the pastor's not here. So I hope I, hope I do God's words uh, justice and I hope that um, we can uh, take something out of it and, uh, and really yeah, take in what, what God's saying to us uh, through uh, the book of Job. So um, why don't uh, I pray and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, we um, reflect on the words that we've sung this morning and particularly our communion, Lord. Um, we just acknowledge how great you are and how little we are, um, how weak we are. Father, how we, um, we turn away from you, we go our own way. But um, in your great love, um, you sent your Son for us we thank you for this. Um, we cling to this, Father. And Lord, um, we thank you for the opportunity to, to read your word, to understand it. We thank you that we live in a country where we can have access to scripture. Uh, so be with me, Father, in my weakness um, and speak through me. Uh, and um, I pray for the congregation to have uh, ears and minds and hearts uh, that are open. Uh, so just work through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I spoke about attending the Kamai Church uh, here a number of years ago uh, and that actually preceded uh, a trip to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I took a year off work. I was working in the corporate finance space at that time and had the opportunity to take a, a year off. I was still single and, and living at home. And I remember, remember being really excited about that opportunity to go away, uh, having a farewell party, packing my bags, booking my flights, um, taking the, the flight over to Cambodia and moving into my new apartment uh, over there on the riverfront and being really excited about the year ahead. I was going to do some uh, mission work. I was going to do some uh, travel as well. And I was just really excited my first time out of home. It was a, a fantastic opportunity. But it was only a couple of weeks in that, uh, that I started to get some chest pain uh, throughout my chest. I saw some uh, doctors, Western doctors that they had over there and tried to essentially work out what was going on. They weren't, weren't able to find out uh, what it was. So essentially they said, look, it's... It's probably, it could be anxiety, could be something else, we don't really know. And 
I was pretty much put in a situation where essentially I just had to live with this intermittent chest pain. And I was in a bit of a tough spot because, you know, I'd come over to Cambodia, was really excited about this opportunity, and then all of a sudden I was getting these chest pains. And I remember just praying, you know, being down on my knees and praying, God, you know, why? Why am I going through this? Why do I have to suffer um, through this time when it's supposed to be an exciting, great opportunity for me? And I was asking, God, where are you? Where are you in this? Why won't you heal me of this? And I think for the first time in my life, really, I know this sounds funny, it was the first time I'd sort of thought to myself, well, you know, in life we have suffering. In life we have suffering. And particularly, you know, if you're, if you're younger, you may, you may say to me now, well, Tom, look, I've had a, a pretty good life. I, you know, I have a, a, a good job. I get to eat good food and watch TV at night and everything and life's, life's pretty good. I don't really suffer. Well, what I'd say to you is, and, you know, from my reading and from my experience, suffering's coming. We're, we're all going to experience suffering at some point in our lives. It's part of the, uh, it's part of the human experience. Um, and to quote Ian Powell, who's an Anglican uh, minister now based in Canberra, he said, if you haven't suffered, don't worry, the trucks have already left the depot. So you get, you get, a, you get a suffer. <laughs> um, and as I said, the question that I was asking at the time was, you know, God, where are you? And we all ask this in suffering. Um, where are you, God, when we suffer? And the book of Job is a great one to look at, uh, particularly when we, when we want to look at the topic of suffering. Now, really difficult to give you a synopsis of the book, but it's hard to preach the book without actually understanding the full context. But if I had to explain the 38, first 38 verses uh, really quickly, what I'd say was that what I'd say is that Job is a rich man, uh, and for whatever reason, we don't really know, but God is having a conversation with Satan, and God points out to Satan that Job is blameless and without fault, and Satan says, "Okay, let's test him, let's make him suffer, and I'm sure, I'm sure God, he'll curse you." And God says, "Okay, you can, you can put, you can let him suffer, but as long as you don't hurt him, as long as you don't touch him." And we read that Satan loses his seven sons and three daughters. They're wiped out. They're, they're killed. Uh, again, God and Satan have a conversation. Um, and, and this time, God allows um, Satan to actually affect uh, Job personally as long as he doesn't kill him. And we see that Satan, uh, Satan inflicts Job with painful sores and, and Job is left on the ground uh, crying. He's, he's made an outcast in his community and he's left having to scratch his broken, painful sores uh, with pottery. He's become repulsive to his wife and despised by the people that he's lived with. And I heard one person describe it as his life being completely deconstructed. And he's asked, he asked the question, where, where, where are you, God? He asked a number of questions, actually, throughout the book in trying to understand his suffering. And if we read through, I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, in chapter 3, he asks, am I suffering because I'm God's enemy? In chapter 4, he asks, am I suffering because I'm not good enough for God? And that's a question that some of us may ask from time to time when we're suffering. And in chapter 9, am I suffering because God has gone missing? And then he has numerous discussions and conversations with four of his friends about the reasons for the suffering and trying to 
trying to come to some understanding. Unfortunately, if you read through the whole book of Job, you actually don't get an answer as to why Job is suffering. But I think if we look through the text and we look particularly at Job, uh, the chapter 38, Job, which was read for us earlier, we can read that God is there when Job suffers and God is there when we suffer. So this morning I want to go through three things that we can read in this text from Job 38 about where is God when we suffer. So uh, if you've got your Bible or iPad or iPhone, please uh, keep it open as we read through. So the first thing that we read in this text is that when we suffer, God speaks to us. When we suffer, God speaks to us. And I'm going to read just the first three verses from the passage. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out here is that it's quite interesting for the first 38 chapters of Job, or sorry, the first 37 chapters of Job, God is referred to in a, an almost a distant way. He's referred to as God the Almighty. But the specific translation of the word Lord here in the Hebrew, in verse 1, then the Lord answered Job, actually talks to God's covenant character. It's a more personal way of describing uh, God, or Lord, or Yahweh. And, you know, I think it would be like for uh, many of you, um, I assume not many of you call your pastor here in this church Pastor Paul Mozichuk, would you? No. So what, what, do you call, what, do you, what do you call your pastor? Paul. You call him Paul. It's a, it's a personal name because he's personal. You know, he's a, he's a friend of yours. Um, and in the same way, we hear that God is speaking to Job in a very personal way. So God speaks to us as well when we suffer. And I think the challenge for us is that when we are going through suffering, we should, we should be personal talking to God as well in prayer and also in, in, in reading God's word. And I think practically that thing, that, that, the way that that plays out is that when we're suffering, we shouldn't be relying ultimately on human comfort, on human ways of trying to decipher our, our suffering. God's word should always be our starting point when we suffer. And God speaks to us through his word, so we should be listening. Now, I won't talk about the decline in uh, the use of the Bible generally in society because we all know, we could all imagine what the stats say around that. But if you look at Australians who call themselves Christian and how many read scripture daily, studies show that we're talking about two in ten are reading scripture daily. Two or maybe three in ten. That's, that's actually a pretty scary stat. We know the usefulness of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So the Word of God needs to be where we're looking when we are suffering. And I don't know why. Why do Christians go to motivational speakers, to internet Google searches? Actually, I'd say I can, can unfortunately do that sometimes or human philosophy, when God has given us his word 
and we can read it and we can speak to him in prayer. And it's a good little catchphrase, but it's a good one to, to remember. When you're suffering, do you go to the phone or do you go to the throne? So that means for the young man with a debilitating illness, you don't look to Facebook or Instagram when you're struggling, but you may read the calming words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me by still waters. Or for the older lady who's struggling with her marriage, you don't look to your friends as your only help for advice. You, you look at the words of Jesus when in John 16 he says he's over, he overcome the world. Or for the man struggling with internet pornography, instead of using your own mental strength to try and stay pure, you humble yourself in prayer and you ask God to give you strength. So when we suffer, God speaks. When we suffer, God speaks. Now the second truth that I think we can get from uh, the text, if you're taking notes, is that when we suffer, God is in control. When we suffer, God is in control. Now, just diving back into the text, for the, for the context, there's been 37 chapters of Job speaking to his friends, trying to come up with a legal reasoning as to what's going on. And when you come to 38 and God finally speaks, commentators point out that Job's probably expecting a detailed legal argument that you know, God's going to give some, almost like a Supreme Court blow by blow, this is why you are suffering. But that's not what Job gets at all. We see from verse 4 of the text that God doesn't try and reason or explain anything to Job. Instead, he asks Job 70 questions about the creation and operation of the universe. Now, I won't go through all 70 questions because we'll be here till lunchtime, but I thought I'd look at three uh, brackets of question um, in the text that was read to us. And they're broken down into three big sections. Uh, the earth, verses 4 to 7, the sea, verses 8 to 11, and the day and the night, which is verses 12 to 16. So let's, let's have a look at them now from verse 4. God speaks to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked it off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or where were its footing sets while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So the first topic is around the creation of the universe. And if we've got any blue-collar tradies here uh, this morning, these terms sort of uh, suit you or you'd be, you'd be quite accustomed to them. The foundation of the earth, uh, the measuring line, uh, the footings of the construction. God is showing that he's an architect who put the earth together. Now, some of you might be saying, well, hang on, Tom, the earth isn't really that big. You can fly, you know, fly to the other side of the earth in 12, in 12 hours. So, you know, that doesn't really impress me. Well, let's get a better idea of how big the universe is. And if we skip forward, uh, we don't have to go there in the text, but verse 31, God asked Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Now, the Pleiades, I'm just going to get them up on the screen here, thank you, refers to a cluster of seven stars and one of the near star clusters to Earth and actually can be seen in the night sky. Now, this cluster of stars from one side to the other is 17.5 light years across. And that is, just to give you some context, 165 trillion kilometres. So if we were to get in the fastest spaceship in history, which is the Helios 2, it would take, wait for it, 70,000 years 
to get from one side to the other. So, if that doesn't impress you, and I think it should, let's go to uh, our next um, bit of astronomy, the Canis Majoris. And some of you may have heard um, these dimensions given before, but they're useful to repeat. If Earth was a golf ball, the Canis Majoris would be the size of Mount Everest. The size of Mount Everest. That's the biggest known star uh, in the known universe. So God shows and demonstrates here in the text that he is a majestic, wonderful creator. Now, now God sort of narrows down and he starts to look more specifically at his creation and particularly the sea in verses 8 to 11. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this is how far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. So we're reading about God's control of the sea. And he's not only in control of the sea, he was involved obviously in its creation. He says, he talks about it almost in a, like it's a maternity ward. He says, it's the sea burst forth from the womb. He talks about it, again, these are sort of motherly terms. It, it, it was wrapped in darkness and uh, wrapped like a blanket with the clouds. And the sea is so wild that we see in verse 11, he has to say to the sea, this is how far you can come and this is how, this is, um, this is how I'm going to control you. And it reminds me actually of a time when I was uh, with my parents-in-law. We were on a big tall ship in the Great Barrier Reef. There was a huge swell and we were going quite quickly and we were all holding on to the, the middle of the boat. And uh, just due, the, due to the, uh, uh, I guess, the velocity and, and the way that the waves were going, my father-in-law actually um, fell off his seat, fell near the edge of the boat and he almost went in. He, he managed to hold on and climb himself back up. Uh, so it was a bit of a close, tense situation. And I remember afterwards we were back on shore and I was talking to my father-in-law and I said, oh, Greg, I said, gee, you got pretty close there, uh, pretty close to falling uh, in the water. And he said, oh, no, Tom, I would have been fine. I would have just, you know, if I got in the water, I would have just swum back and it would have all been good. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, maybe it was out of respect for my father-in-law, I didn't say anything. And I just said, I just thought to myself, absolutely no way he was getting back in that boat if he fell off the boat he was gone so uh thanks to god that didn't happen but it just reminded me how wild um god's creation is and how beyond our control it is there's a lot of discussion i actually work in the state government and there's a lot of discussion uh at the moment about the bushfires what's causing them um and we know in Australia that we deal with a lot of um, natural events, floods, you know, uh, bushfires. The, the majority of, of the bushfires at the moment really are, are being caused because of, of the severe uh, drought. Uh, but of course there's people who rush and want to have various explanations, rushing to climate change and other things. And I think that comes down to it. We just want to be, a lot of people just want to be in control. We want to be able to say this is why X is happening so, so that means Y. Um, but we, we don't have that control. Um, and in the last section, just quickly, verses 12 to 16, God, controls, uh, God shows that he controls day and night itself. Have you, have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like a clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and the upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep. 
So here God shows, he spoke about creation, he spoke about the sea. Now he says, I control the day and the night, the morning and the evening. In verses 13 and 15, we get the image that the light exposes those who do evil, like shaking the corners of a cloth. And in verse 14, God talks about how he designed the earth like a clay under a seal. If I can just go to slide four, we can see that um, it's almost like that's God's creation. He just prints it like a stamp, as easy as that. And in verse 16, the recesses of the deep, uh, God knows what's going on in the ocean's depths. God is establishing that he is Lord of the day and the night. So going back to our topic of suffering, you might be asking, why does God respond this way? How does this relate to suffering? And God created huge and wonderful things. Well, so what? What does that mean for me? Well, in answering the question, where are you when suffering occurs, God responds with how eternal, how great, how powerful and wise he is, demonstrating that he is Lord of the earth, the sea, the day and the night. And he's trying to get Job to understand how little and insignificant he is in comparison to the God of the universe. And we don't have to go there, but if you skip forward to uh, verse 42, you actually see Job's response. And he actually, at, at, right at the end of the book, he acknowledges God's power and sovereignty. And there's a sense of acknowledgement that, God has well and, sorry, that Job has well and truly lost the battle of control and understanding. So the same thing for us when we're suffering, in particular, and always, we should know how great and infinite God is. We should trust in his sovereign power. Reflect on God's word, for, for example, in Isaiah 55, when he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so, your ways higher than, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. And when we're suffering, we need to be challenged and trust that God is good and he is powerful. Because as uh, Duncan pointed out in communion, we do, it's our, in our sinful nature, we, we want to take control of things. We want to take control of our time, our finances, our relationships. We want to be gods of our own lives. But that is corrupted thinking. And we see in Job that it's God that has ultimate control. And I think the great thing is, and a thing really to rest on this morning, is that God is a majestic creator, but he's also a God who hears our prayers. There's a fantastic sovereign, sovereign grace song, All Praise to Him, that puts it this way. All praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. So we, we trust in God's control when we're suffering. If you're the HSC student and you're worried about you know, a poor performance, you trust that God has your future in control. If you're recently retired and you're struggling to know what are you going to do with your time, you trust that God has a plan. Or if you're like me and you get a little bit worried when you get on an airplane from time to time, you trust that God has ultimate control. Even though we suffer, we know God is in control. Now, after looking at a 16 verses at once. We're just going to look at one verse for the third truth that we get from the text and that's in verse 17. Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? It's in this last verse that we're going to look at this morning. God shows he's not only in control of the creation of the sea, the day and the night, he's also in control 
of life and death. God goes beyond the things that Job could think or even imagine and he talks about the gates of darkness, Sheol. He talks about hell itself, that God's in control of that as well. And I I think this is important. The, The mention of life and death is important because knowing that God is in sovereign and control of the earth things, um, that, that, that are good thing. they are good things, but when we understand that God is in control of life and death when we're suffering, that must be our ultimate comfort. Because if we know that God is in control of life and death, we know that any suffering in this life is temporary. Any suffering in this life is temporary. And God knows that we struggle. We struggle from control. We struggle in our sin um, and that in our sin, really, death is the end. And that's why he had a solution. A solution that not only takes care of our lack of control, but also takes care of our lack, uh, also takes care of our suffering. You see, when God asks, when, sorry, when we ask God, where are you when we're suffering, he not only speaks, he not only says he's in control, He also sends a saviour. He doesn't give us an answer. He gives us his son. He points us to the rugged cross in Calvary where his son suffered for us. So I've taken a while to get there in this last, in this third truth. But the third truth that I get from this text is that when we suffer, God sends a saviour. When we suffer, God God sends a saviour. Jesus, who carried a heavy wooden cross who was spat on, who was flogged, who was mocked, who was given a crown of thorns and crucified for us. And we read in Ephesians 2 that because of his great love, God, who is so rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our sins. And that is the ultimate hope and redemption from suffering. Because as I said, we know that suffering is temporary. And we read in in the book of Revelation, he will wipe every tear from our eyes that we know more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So this gives us a new perspective on suffering. And we as Christians, we, we know that the suffering is part of the Christian life and uh, particularly you know, persecution that comes from being, being a Christian. If you read many books, uh, particularly the epistles in the New, new Testament, particularly 1 Peter, you, you get a real insight into that. Suffering is part of the Christian life, it happens and any church that tells you that it doesn't happen or that life is good or that God wants you to have a, a good life free of suffering, uh, that's, that's obviously false teaching. So we need to put God in his rightful place, we need to realise his sovereign power and that humbles us, calls us to repentance and to turn away from our sin. And the good news is that we know that if we repent and we trust in Christ, we will live in heaven forever with God and no longer face suffering or pain. And that gives us the ultimate comfort. When we face that terrible diagnosis, when we suffer long through difficult family relationships or when we deal with chronic depression or anxiety. Our suffering takes on a different meaning when we know Christ who says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Even though we suffer, God sends a saviour. So, just to conclude this morning, uh, as I said, the book of Job doesn't give Job an explanation exactly as to why he's suffering. But as we see God's response, 
in Job 38 teaches that God speaks to us, teaches us that God is sovereign and lastly it teaches us that God is in control of life and death and that he sent a saviour for us. So I, I began this morning and I, I spoke to you about uh, that time in Cambodia back in 2012 when I was dealing with those chest pains and complaining and being frustrated with God and crying out to him. But I know it sounds a little funny, but the pains that I got in my chest at the time, I remember, well, they are a bit of a reminder to the fact that God suffered on the cross for me. And that was really good perspective. And uh, ultimately, God was using that time for his glory. He was driving me closer to him. And uh, a few months later, I remained in Cambodia. I stayed in Cambodia. I met a young girl uh, called Heather, and she's now my wife. So God was using that uh, for his glory, obviously. (laughs) so yes in this world we we do have suffering but God speaks he's sovereign he calls us to repent and trust in him we need to be thinking ourselves personally are we looking at the world for our comfort when we suffer or are we reading the scriptures and praying and knowing we have an eternal salvation and are we looking at the wonder of creation and knowing that God has it all in control Are we considering what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for us eternally? Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I just pray that you come to him uh, with an open heart, seek him, because ultimately in him you'll find a comfort that the world will never give you. So we look at the story of Job, we look at God's response and we see how God used Job's suffering to bring him to God. And I want to finish uh, this morning with a quote from John Newton, which should be a great comfort to any of us who is suffering. How unspeakably wonderful to know that all our concerns are held in hands that bled for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Job, for you, for the way that you spoke to Job, the way that you comfort him. And Lord, as we reflect on this text, uh, we just want to hold on to the fact, Lord, that we know that you speak, that you're not distant, that you're a personal God, um, that you are sovereign. And Lord, that you sent your son to die for us when we didn't deserve it. So Lord, I pray for all of us here, may we lean on these truths, may they uh, not leave us but may we be reflecting them on this week and as we head out uh, and may we trust in you and live lives that glorify you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you so much Tom for sharing from God's word.